Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 22, the book of Matthew, chapter 6, the third continuation. Well, we ended last week by discussing Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And beginning with this verse, and on into the first part of chapter 7, Yeshua deals with an array of matters that in modern vocabulary we would probably label as social issues. And the first one has to do with money, or better, material wealth, and how that might affect our relationship with God. Now before we go any further, let's reread a few verses. So open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 19. We're only going to read verses 19 through 24. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we'll be on page 1230, 1230. Starting at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves wealth here on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and burglars break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves wealth in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and burglars do not break in or steal. For where your wealth is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if you have a good eye, that is, if you're generous, your whole body will be full of light, but if you have an evil eye, if you're stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can be a slave to two masters, for he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. Now, because Yeshua is dealing with social matters, we need to keep our understanding of them in context of what this meant to first century Jewish society. Now, the good news is that the general principles that he is teaching are easily transferable in time and culture, and they can be applied anywhere, anytime. The first instruction speaks of how a follower of Christ ought to approach the matter of wealth accumulation and then how to use it. It's important to note that nowhere does Yeshua condemn wealth. Instead, the issues are how much of our life should we focus on building up material wealth, and then second, what we are to do with what we acquire. Therefore, the command is not that we should renounce material possessions. Rather, it is more the treasure that we should approach with a healthy suspicion. Now, treasure means the accumulation of that which is most valuable to us, not the mere possession of things, which many of which are, are necessary. They're reasonable for living a civilized life. So picture the mythical Midas laying upon and luxuriating in his big pile of gold. 
His life was entirely focused on the accumulation of money, simply for the sake of having it and glorying in it. You know, many years ago, when I was still in the corporate world, I knew a few folks who had made and were making considerable money. And they did this through owning high-tech companies and or through running them. Now one of them was a close friend. And one day we were talking about wealth and the purpose for working so hard to get it. And he said that as for himself, the wealth that he was accumulating was his scorecard. It was his scorecard that measured his success, not only in achieving his personal goals, but also it measured his success relative to others. And indeed for him, wealth accumulation was a scorecard. Now I think this is a pretty good example of what Jesus is talking about as precisely not the way his followers are to approach the issue of material wealth. Our wealth should never be the scorecard of our life. Rather, we are to focus our efforts and to measure the success of our earthly life on how much wealth we accumulate in heaven. Now we discussed storing up wealth, or better treasure, in heaven last time. However, I want to briefly remind you what was said, because I think it's important for all believers to gain such a mindset in a real tangible way, so that we can know exactly when we're doing it, or we're not doing it. The question then is, how exactly does one store up our treasure in heaven? Well, the ancient Jews often equated heaven with a treasury, and they called the treasures stored there the treasures of life. Now, obviously, since heaven is a spiritual and eternal place, the ancient Jews couldn't and can't store material treasure there. Gold, silver, precious jewels, barns full of produce, herds of animals, fine clothing, and more cannot be present in heaven because it's a spiritual place, it's not a physical one. So what are heavenly treasures? How do we accumulate them while we're alive and on earth? Matthew 23:23 provides that answer. It is our righteous deeds during our lifetime that produce heavenly treasure. By God's definition and viewpoint, that righteous treasure consists of our acts of mercy, justice, and trust. Trust meaning sincere faith in God. Mercy, justice, and trust. They are more than fine ideas. They're more than our intent and all that we do, our inward qualities. But rather, they are to be a moral philosophy of life. 
And these are not only to be our motivating force and intent in all that we do, our inward qualities, rather we are to physically and tangibly act out these ideas. Motives intents and intents through our works and deeds, our outward behavior, that's what we're supposed to do. The poorest humans, having the least material wealth, can think in terms of and do deeds of mercy, justice, and trust. So even in our acquisition of material wealth, it can and must be done within the bounds of mercy, justice, and truth. Or rather, trust. Trust. Fair play in our business dealings, whether it's with our neighbors, with clients, or with customers, must be a constant. Showing compassion to those whom we may be in a position to take advantage of due to our situation or status must always be considered paying a fair wage even though we might be able to hire someone who is desperate for income for much less than we otherwise might, that displays the proper motivation for acquisition of heavenly wealth. Now, these are just a few everyday examples of our operating in mercy, justice, and trust. Thus, ironically, heavenly treasure consists of our earthly physical actions while we are on earth which are a type which are of a type that produces spiritual treasure in heaven as its byproduct and the really great news is says Christ that while that material treasure that one accumulates on earth is not bad or wrong it is inevitably subject to rot loss or destruction, but the heavenly treasure that we store up is safe and it's secure and it stores without deterioration or any loss of value for an eternity. Next Jesus gives us the bottom line of what the purpose is behind this wealth principle. In verse 20 he says, for where your wealth is, there your heart will be also. Now recall that in that era, the heart organ was believed to be where the mind operated. The heart was thought to be the place of rational thinking and where our human will resided. Thus a better way to state this verse in modern English terms is, for where your wealth is, there your mind will be also. So Yeshua's statement is not an issue of our emotional focus. It is an issue of where our thinking, where the passion of our will, and where our intellectual focus lies. Yeshua makes it somewhat of a zero-sum game. You know, all of us, only have so much mental energy and time to give and to use. So whichever path we choose automatically means that for every measure of time and energy that one endeavor receives, 
the other one gets an equal amount less of our time and energy. It's like a teeter-totter. One is up, the other must be down. Now verse 22 sounds as though Christ is opening up another issue, but in fact, what he says has everything to do with what we just discussed, money and wealth. And it begins with the famous words, the amp, uh, the, the, rather the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is the lamp of the body. Some will call this and what follows a parable. Maybe from the modern definition of a parable it is, but it was not from the first century Jewish viewpoint. And as we get to Yeshua's first parable as listed in Matthew, we're going to get deeply into what a parable is, its intended use, and how we need to understand biblical parables in our time. Now, this statement that the eye is the lamp of the body deserves a great deal of our attention because the way it is nearly universally taught in Christendom has nothing to do with what it meant to the people Yeshua was talking to. The way it is taught from most pulpits is that the meaning is that the eye acts as a portal, a gateway, a channel that guides what we see. That is, the, the, the light comes from an external source, it comes in to the body, and then into the brain. Now why do we think that? Because in fact, from a medical standpoint, it's true. The eye is an amazing organ that takes light, then enters into it in the forms of shapes and hues and textures and various intensities and converts that light into millions of minuscule electrical impulses, which are then sent along the optical nerve into the thalamus and from there it is distributed into the special parts and lobes of our brain that were designed to process those signals and turn them into meaning. So it's kind of like a cable goes between the eye that operates like a camera and then it connects to the brain that operates like a TV. Yet the eye, our camera, can only process what is taken in from the outside world. It cannot create its own images. However, the ancient world knew nothing of this biological process. They didn't know what the brain did. They didn't even know how eyes functioned. Generally speaking, speaking such scientific knowledge, even in its most primitive understanding, wasn't known until around 1500 AD. So, then what did that statement about the eye being the lamp of the body mean to those Jews that were sitting before Yeshua in the hills above the Sea of Galilee who did not think in the same way we do. Because whatever it meant to them, that is exactly how Christ intended it to mean to everyone in all eras, including to us today. Now I'm going to say up front that because ancient Jewish expressions and, and their meanings are so distant and unknown within modern Western culture that what I'm about to explain to you is going to sound a little bit complicated. Now first, know that the statement of the eye is the lamp 
of the body is not found in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was the Bible of the Jews in Yeshua's time. So it was apparently only a well-known expression within Jewish society. Rather it is that in that day the eye was regularly compared with a lamp, in a sense that a lamp produces its own light. Thus part of that ancient idea is that, unlike how we might think of it, the eye does not take in light, it produces light. We find this same concept in the Old Testament and in other ancient Jewish manuscripts. In Daniel 10.6, his body was like beryl, his face looked like lightning, and his eyes like fiery torches. The Apostle John used the same description about the eye in his apocalypse in Revelation 1.14. His head and hair were as white as snow white wool, his eyes like a fiery flame. Okay, here's how we should think about this. Does a lamp give off light or does it take in light? Of course, it gives off light, but it doesn't always. A lamp is a device that when it has fuel in it and when the wick that has become soaked with that fuel is lit, then it emits light. However, that light can be extinguished, so the lamp goes dark even though the lamp itself continues to exist. So in Jesus' sermon, what is it that He says determines the status of that lamp? The eye is the lamp of the body. That is, does the lamp create light in the eye? Or does the lamp not produce light and thus the lamp remains dark? That is the subject of the last half of verse 22 and all of verse 23. Now the last half of verse 22 says, So if you have a good eye, your whole body will be full of light. In Jewish expression, a good eye meant to be generous with your money or your material things. On the other hand, as it says in verse 24, But if you have an evil eye, your whole body will be full of darkness. An evil eye meant to be stingy with your money or material things. So from an ancient Jewish perspective, it is the eye that operates as a lamp in the sense of it being like an indicator of the inner moral condition of the person. When the lamp of the eye is lit, when the lamp then for is emitting light, it indicates a generous person. A generous person in God's economy displays mercy, justice, and trust. But when the lamp of the eye is dark, that is, it's not lit, so it's not emitting light, then it indicates a stingy person. And this stinginess indicates an immoral lack of mercy, justice, and trust. Thus, verses 22 and 23 together form a wordplay that integrates two well-known Jewish expressions into one profound thought.
let me be clear. The eye and the lamp are used as metaphors. That is, there is no suggestion here that one can peer into another person's eye and see an actual light from a lamp on, or on the other hand see that there's no light coming from a darkened lamp. Nor can a person look into another person's literal eye and then judge from its appearance whether that person is generous or stingy. Now, Professors Davies and Allison liken Christ's statement to a riddle that can be understood on two levels. I entirely agree with that claim. However, I would label those two levels as the Peshat, the simplest sense, and the Remez, a hint at something deeper. The Peshat sense of it is this. The eye is the lamp of the body was kind of a common Jewish proverb. If one's eye is good, to a Jew that meant they were generous, then it indicates that this person is operating in the proper spirit of life on earth by loving their fellow man as they love themselves and demonstrating that by sharing their wealth and their treasures with others. But if one's eye is evil, and to a Jew meant that that meant they were stingy, then it indicates that person was not operating in the proper spirit of life on earth, and they do not love their fellow man as they love themselves, as demonstrated by their not sharing their wealth and treasures with others. Obviously, Christ is saying, be generous with whatever material wealth you have. But in the Remez sense of it, it is speaking of a higher spiritual truth. It is that a person with a good eye not only is operating within the moral standard of loving one's fellow man as much as they love themselves, but he is also operating in a righteous manner that pleases God. And so it matters greatly in the spiritual eternity that comes after we die. It will have a definite role in determining our place within the societal structure of God's eternal kingdom. Conversely, a person with an evil eye not only is operating immorally and is not carrying out God's Torah commandment of loving one's fellow man as much as they love themselves by refusing to share their wealth and treasure with others, but they are also jeopardizing and lowering their place within the societal structure of God's eternal kingdom. So our generosity or our stinginess with whatever little or whatever much wealth we accumulate on earth will be a prime determining factor, among other things, of our status in our spiritual eternity. In verse 24, Christ sort of sums up what his teaching on money and treasure and material wealth means. In another of his most famous sayings, he says this in Matthew 6 24, no one can be a slave to two masters, for he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. Or as we more commonly hear it, like it is in the King James Version, 
No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now before we discuss this passage, we need to make a decision concerning the final word of verse 24, which is money in the complete Jewish Bible and mammon in the King James Version. Now the reason we need to contemplate this is that most Christians consider the word money to be a generally neutral term. In other words, it's neither good nor evil. But the word mammon is decidedly a negative term. It is evil. Now the Greek word that's being translated is mammonus. Now this word was actually borrowed from an older Aramaic word, mammon, that meant wealth, but more in the sense of meaning profit. Early Latin borrowed the word from the Greek, and they pronounced it mammona, which simply meant wealth. It was used this way in the Latin Vulgate Bible, which was based on the works by the early church father Jerome late in the fourth century. It is at this point that within the early Gentile church the term seems to have taken on a negative, even an evil sense. Up to that time, the word was a rather neutral and generic term that simply meant money or wealth or a profit made from business dealings with no stigma as to its rightness or its wrongness. So right at the start of the 5th century we find that within the Christian church <coughs> the Latin mammona, later borrowed by the English language and made into the term mammon, morphed into something that is bad and it's to be avoided. But in Christ's era, and for a few centuries afterward, it indicated nothing bad at all. It was just a word that meant money or wealth in all of its forms and amounts. So what does that mean for us? First it means we have to adjust our thinking. Therefore the complete Jewish Bible version that uses the term money is, a better, is, is much better than those versions that translate the word as mammon. Although in the end, the idea from Christ's day is closer to meaning material wealth in whatever form, provided we understand that even the term wealth does not always mean rich. It means the value of an object or of labor. The main point being made by Yeshua was not at all indicating that material things or even abundant material wealth was bad. Now in Luke 16, this same statement was recorded with exactly the same words. So we can take Yeshua's statement about God and wealth as authentic and not reworded at some point in history. Let us remember that the context for this instruction of Jesus began all the way back in verse 19. So it is all part of his lesson about how a follower of his ought to view money, especially if it's treasure. So to this point he has fashioned his lesson on the matter about how we are to treat it 
in view of our relationship with other human beings. Now in verse 24, he switches to how we are to treat money in view of our relationship with God. Thus he he frames money and God as the two possible masters of our life. And he says we must choose between them. So considering what he has said in the previous couple of verses, it comes down to this. Those who are generous on earth are also storing up treasures in heaven, and this is the evidence that they have chosen God as their master. Those who are stingy on earth and are only storing up treasures on earth and none in heaven have thus chosen money and wealth as their master. Now, just as in the previous chapter, chapter 5, when we read verses 17 through 19 in chapter 5, when Yeshua is making a statement in which he is anticipating objections or accusations, at least from some in the crowd, about what he's going to say, here in Matthew 6 24, he seems to also anticipate some kind of pushback. And since he is saying it is impossible, to serve two masters, he knows that some are going to say, sure you can, sure you can. I can work hard with all my time and focus to gain wealth at the same time I'm working hard to follow God. In modern colloquial terms, they're saying, hey, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. But Yeshua says that because of our human nature, we only have the human capacity to love the one master and hate the other one. I want to remind you that in the Bible, love and hate really aren't quite like we think of those terms in the 21st century. Love and hate to us express the extremes of our emotions. But in Yeshua's day, to love and to hate were what we could justifiably call political terms. That is, to love your master, it could be your king, your governor, even a person to whom you are in servitude, for example, means to give them your sincere loyalty. To hate your master means to be disloyal to them. So it is my opinion that in modern times, in better English, the better way to say what Christ is getting at is, You cannot be a slave to two masters because you'll be loyal to the one and disloyal to the other one. Thus, for the person who believes that they can focus day and night upon wealth building, basing nearly every decision they make around that goal, but at the same time claim they're all in for serving God, it cannot be so, even if they want it to be so. Christianity sometimes calls this straddling the fence. One foot in the world of acquiring material wealth, the other foot in the world of trying to serve God. Again, this is not Yeshua speaking against material gain. It is that it must always be secondary to our focus and relationship with God. Yeshua not only means that we can't 
cannot serve two masters well, it is that it is impossible to serve two masters the way a master must be served. I mean, frankly, such a notion of serving two masters is almost an oxymoron. If one is your master, please pay attention to this. If one is your master, then by definition, you can't have a second one, or neither of them is your master. Instead, you are trying to be the master of all. Today in the prosperous West, you know, it's not easy to figure out how to balance money and wealth acquisition with serving God. We tend to go to extremes. Some people decide that having more than their basic needs met is wrong. It's not godly. So they look at those who have wealth as automatically godless and wicked people. Others think that if you profess Christianity, that God automatically wants you to be abundantly wealthy. The wrong-minded prosperity doctrine came from this mindset. It really revolves around the existence of that divine scorecard we talked about earlier. That is, as a Christian, the more material wealth you accumulate indicates a greater faith in God. And so this wealth can be seen as your visible reward from God for your faithfulness. The reality is, this is just a way to spin this passage so that we can violate its underlying principle. You can't have it both ways. From God's perspective, you cannot give all your loyalty to both the accumulation of wealth and service to Him. Choose. Choose. Now, this is a good time to make just a brief mention about what a modern believer ought to do with the wealth we have accumulated, however little or large. And at the top of the list, always, is give. Give. Be merciful. Be obedient. But ultimately, be generous both in mind and in behavior. You know, giving grudgingly or even mechanically, that's worth less than not giving at all. Because motive and intent is what the Lord is looking for above all else. Having the motive and intent but never quite getting around to doing what you know you should do about your giving, that's just as wrong. There are people all around us that need help. There are ministries that you are no doubt associated with that need help to be funded, to be able to carry out the commission they've been given. Holding back when you could give and should give is, according to Christ, to your personal eternal detriment. All right, enough said. So I want to move on now to verse 25, but I want to leave you with this thought about wealth and our relationship with the Lord. First, we do not find Christ developing new rules about wealth. 
Yeshua himself regularly relied on the hospitality of others in his own ministry. In fact, for doing so, he was one time called a glutton, another time he was called a drunkard. Luke 7.34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, aha, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. Second of all, Christ doesn't even cry out against the current economic system of his day that had created so many rich, so many poor. That's because the issue is not wealth itself. For him, the issue is its proper use. Because wealth and money is such a huge part of life for all of us, but especially for Westerners, I want to quote something that Martin Hengel said that well captures the essence of Yeshua's position on this matter. Jesus was not interested in any new theories about the rightness and wrongness of possessions in themselves or about the origin of property or its better distribution. Rather, he adopted the same scandalously free and untrammeled attitude to property as to the powers of the state, the alien Roman rule and its Jewish confederates. The eminence of the kingdom of God robs all these things of their power. In other words, as with everything that Jesus has so far instructed in his Sermon on the Mount, there's nothing new here. Nothing new. Rather, he is stating all the old tried and true laws, regulations, common virtues known for centuries in Hebrew society, but now they are to be thought of and acted upon within this new reality of the sudden arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven. We too, we too must look at all things in the Bible, all things in our lives in light of the ever-expanding reality of the Kingdom of God that is here now including the certainty of the end of all things, and then the soon return to earth of this kingdom's ruler, Yeshua, the Son of God. What does our wealth mean? What ought to be its purpose when we have that knowledge and when we think of it in that way? Let's read a little bit more in Matthew chapter 6. Pick your Bibles back up and turn to Matthew 6, verse 25. We're still on page uh, 1230 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Starting at verse 25 in Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds flying around. They neither plant nor harvest, nor do they gather food into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now aren't you worth more than they are? Can any of you, by worrying at a single hour, 
to his life? Why be anxious about clothing? I mean, think about the fields of wild irises, how they grow. They neither work nor do they spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Shlomo Solomon in all of his glory was clothed as beautifully as one of these. If this is how God clothes grass in the field, which is here today, gone tomorrow, thrown in an oven, won't he much more clothe you? Oh, what little trust you have. So don't be anxious, asking, oh, what will we eat? What will we drink? How will we be clothed? For it's the pagans who set their hearts on all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough tsuris worry already. Verse 25 begins with what I think we could rightly call a proverb of Yeshua. It is, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. Now, words like this impress and imprint on the lives of some, but then it just flies over the head of others. For whatever reason, the Apostle Peter took those words to heart. In 1 Peter 5, 7 we read, Throw all your anxieties upon upon Him, because He cares about you. See, the idea of trusting God for all the provisions of life, that was well embedded in ancient Hebrew society. Now, I spoke earlier more than once in his sermon, Yeshua expected there to be murmurings and objections to some of the things he said. Thus, beginning in verse 25, Christ answers the question that so many in that large crowd would have inwardly thought or maybe even expressed out loud. In fact, if you've been paying attention, maybe some of you are asking this same question right now. And it's this. So, if I spend all my time and energy serving God, then how am I supposed to provide for me and my family? I mean, can I really ever be completely indifferent to the need and want of money and material things, even including such such basic things as food and clothing? I mentioned at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel that he sees Yeshua as a sort of second Moses. And in many ways Christ is reliving the life of Moses. So as we read those final verses of chapter 6, we do not find Yeshua solving the rhetorical riddle, the one I just asked. Rather, like Moses, as the people gathered in Egypt for their wilderness journey, and he does not tell the people how they're going to be provided for all during that time of their journey, neither does Yeshua provide all the answers for us as to how we can serve God with all of our focus and loyalty, and at the same time acquire the provisions that we are bound to need to sustain life. Rather, both Moses and Jesus simply say, follow me. 
follow me. Then the people will either believe and trust or they won't. Now when Yeshua compares the value of life to eat and drink and the body to clothing and the need of food to the toil of planting and harvesting, He is in no way suggesting that we all ought to become lazy or in some kind of a warped sense of being provided for, just kind of lay around and wait for God to supernaturally feed, house, and clothe us. Rather, Christ is acknowledging nothing is more human than to worry about money. You know, I've known a few rich people who just might worry more about money than people who have little. So this is proof in itself that harboring anxiety about all these things does not move us one inch closer to solving the problem of worry in our lives. Only faith in the Lord can be the balm that soothes and calms. So what I'm saying is that this question falls in line with the choice we were given about choosing our master, whether that master be money or it be God. The choice is, shall we let worry and anxiety be our master, or shall we let our faith in God be the ruler of our thoughts? And as with money and God, there's no halfway, one foot in, the other foot out approach that's workable. Choose! Personal anxieties are about uh, about our needs, or do we choose faith in God? Let's understand. Having food, clothing, and something to, to drink are generally a given in most of Western society in our time. Of course, acknowledging that there are those who fall outside that generality. But in Christ's day, it was these things that were the greatest everyday sources of worry and anxiety for Jews. Now today, we worry a lot (laughs) about what disease we might catch, or about the value of stocks in our 401ks, whether we'll get a good raise at work, or if the cost of health insurance will become unaffordable for us. These are all things that to us seem reasonable to be concerned about. So the underlying subject of these final verses of chapter 6 are not really so much about food, drink, and clothing. Rather, they are about faith in God as the antidote for worry. Every era and every person has legitimate things that we could be anxious about. But in every era, Trusting God is our best hope for inner peace, no matter what the circumstance might arise. Now notice how Christ uses examples from nature to make His point. The idea of comprehending great spiritual truths from observing physical, natural creatures and objects is found all throughout the Bible. C.H. Dodd puts it this way, Jesus held the conviction that there's no mere analogy, but rather 
an inward affinity between the natural order and the spiritual order, or as we might put it in the language of the parables themselves, the kingdom of God is intrinsically like the process of nature. Since nature and supernature are one order, you can take part of that order and then find illumination for the other parts. That is, the natural kingdom and the spiritual kingdom aren't so much similar as they are actually cut from the same cloth, because they are equally produced and watched carefully over by the same loving Creator. So Yeshua's use of birds and plants, flowers, to compare to human life and our needs are not far-fetched or mere rhetoric. One explains the other. But there is one thing that isn't the same. The value of birds and plants versus the value of human life. Here Yeshua uses standard Jewish, even rabbinic, logic and argument. He uses the principle of Kal Vomer, the principle of light versus heavy. The principle is used in philosophy to compare items A and B under certain circumstances. So if A is true, then B must be so much more. In this case, since God has so much concern for humanity, that He sent His Son to die for us, won't He then give to us what we need in such greater proportion than He does to care for birds and for plants? And the answer to a call Volmer question lies within the structure of the question itself. And the answer to Christ's question is, well, of course God will give more care to humans made in His image than to plants and birds who are already wonderfully cared for. Well, at the end of verse 27, Yeshua follows up that question with yet another one. Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to his life? I want to say this in another way. Worrying is foolish and it accomplishes nothing. Not only does it not add to your longevity, it probably takes away from it. So why do it? Why do it? Worrying is the epitome of doing something inherently unproductive or even destructive. So the obvious answer to his question is, no! Does any human being, Jew or Gentile, believe that worrying helps matters? Or that anxiety, well, that's the key to a long lifespan. So if we all inherently know the answer to that, why do we keep doing it? Seemingly helpless, helpless to stop it. The answer, unfortunately, is at the end of verse 30. What little trust you have. Ouch. Two verses later, Jesus says that having a little trust, which brings on great anxiety, is what the pagans experience. Why? Because they set their hearts on all these things. What things? 
literally, food, clothing, and drink. But these items are merely representative of all the material needs that humans have or desire. And pagans experience worry, says Yeshua, because this is what they set their hearts on. In other words, money and material possessions is inherently the master of the pagans. And the result is the never fully satisfied want of them. But if God is our master, then as verse 33 says, seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, and then all of these other things, our material needs, that will be given to you. Now, believers seem to readily notice the part where it says to first seek his kingdom, but often the and his righteousness part seems to just sail by unnoticed. Remember what we've learned in the past. God's righteousness is His will to save. So seeking His righteousness means to seek His salvation. His kingdom and His salvation are organically connected. His kingdom is the realm of the saved and only of the saved. And the only channel to salvation lies in God's Son. Yeshua. So once again, we see Christ not saying, seek only God and have no interest in acquiring provisions for you and your family. Rather, this is yet another statement about priorities. We need God's salvation and we also need sustenance and provision. But first, and with the most energy and above all else, we need to seek God's kingdom and the salvation He offers. Thus, since worry is always about our physical, material, and earthly wants and needs, which are always to be secondary to our spiritual relationship with God, then stop worrying about these things and especially about the future. You can't control, amend, or stop the future. This doesn't mean not to plan or to be indifferent to your obvious needs. This is talking about fruitless anxiety, obsessing, fretting about things, as opposed to planning a way to improve your circumstances in concert with fullest trust in God as your master. Because whatever God wills, ordains or allows, folks, that's inevitable. We'll begin chapter 7 next time.